We're back, Club 30, another episode. I'm here with my good friend, Jay Lydell. How are you feeling, Jay? I limped into the studio today. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm not it, gonna it was lie, buddy. <laughs> eventful weekend. Yeah, Hank and I were uh, in Austin, Texas for the Grand Prix, the F1 race. Yeah, and today's episode is about something that we're both very passionate about, cars. Yeah. F1, racing, and today we're going to have a great guest, Zach Brown. I think we're just getting started, right? We haven't had Vegas yet, so that's going to be awesome. We're only two years into Miami. Brad Pitt has a new movie coming out uh, end of next year. I think much like Top Gun, if you watch Top Gun and you want it to be a pilot afterwards, I would imagine there's going to be a lot of people that want to be a racing car driver or ha- you know, be in the racing business. So I think that's going to create a lot of new exposure. So I, I think in North America, in many ways, we're just getting started. He had an eventful weekend in a very different way than you and I had an eventful weekend, but equally as exciting. So I'm really excited to talk to Zach later. Yeah. And, and if you wonder why we sound a little different today. Um, they messed up the mics. It's, it has <laughs> nothing to do with, with the, Lack the of weekend. Sleep. No, no. Or yelling too much. Yeah. We've been yelling at each other. Uh, over Formula One cars and DJs. And so <laughs> you just have to excuse us and bear with us. I mean, Club Jay, Ma- you've been to a bunch of F1 races. Yeah, sure. I have not been to a ton, but it's been amazing. And obviously it's about the race, the cars, sure. but there's always so much going on. Yeah. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about a F1 weekend? Well, it hasn't always been that way. F1 was historically run by this one guy in a very controlling manner. He didn't value much beyond what would line his pockets with money. So the on-track stuff was up to the promoter of the race to decide whether it was cool for the fans or not. And since they only got paid on specific things and it cost them to run these races, typically until like the early 2010s, the fan experience at the races was only catered to diehard fans. Very hard to understand what was going on. TV access limited. There was no beer garden. And that was always frustrating for me as a fan who was introduced to the sport on TV. And then I could go nerd out behind the scenes afterwards. When I arrived at the track, I thought this is going to be a really immersive experience. And I I found it lacking. But then late, maybe 2016, 2017, Liberty Media bought F1 and all the commercial rights. And they've transformed it into this experience around the world, Mm -hmm. right? Open Miami. And that was also the start of something new here in the States. Uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have watched the amazing documentary on Netflix, Drive to Survive. Right. It's what, season four going on right now? I think they have four seasons in the books and season five is being recorded. And there's no secret that really turned things around for F1 in the States. Yes. But I love how you get an opportunity to watch the drivers up close, but also to understand how much politics and the drama between the teams, but also within the teams, between the drivers. And this is definitely something I want to talk to Zach about today. I think his life changed a little bit when Netflix came around because now I feel like they're superstars. Yeah. He certainly was like an early superstar of of Drive to Survive, which doesn't give him enough credit for being an incredible entrepreneur in motorsport because he's been that for a long time. But Drive to Survive put a lot of these characters on the map because ultimately we watch sports, not for the the box score at the end of the game or the league table, but we watch sports because of the characters, right? 
And the level, the number of layers of characters in F1 goes all the way from the owners of Renault and Ferrari and McLaren to the mechanics who were changing the tires. You, you touched on it in sports, the more you know the players or the drivers, yeah. the teams, the more you care for them, right? That's right. And it's a good lesson for any sports franchise. If you market it really well, people get so much more interested, right? Yeah. And you see some pro sports that they're doing a good job, but I feel like this show really took their sport to the next level. Totally. And we see that at the races. I think this weekend in Austin, there was upwards of 350,000 people there for the weekend. Just back to my earlier point, it was an immersive fan experience. We had on Saturday, we were there for qualifying and this thing they have now called the sprint race, also designed to boost engagement through the weekend. They never used to have a mini race on Saturday that meant anything. But they also had Tiesto play right after the sprint race was over. It's kind of an A-game, big league entertainment idea. There's a huge kind of plaza where you can buy food and booze and hang out. So they did a really good job of both bringing new fans in and then giving them something that they really enjoyed on site. Yeah, it was definitely an amazing event and, and a great weekend. And again, we're going to call Zach here in, in a little bit. But before we do that, I, I want to talk about cars. Yeah, yeah. That's. I mean, we, it was something that we early on connected over. Yep. Do you remember your first car? I sure do. Um, the, the first running car I had was maybe a 1993 Ford Tempo. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was a piece of shit, obviously. <laughs> How about yours? My first car was a red Pontiac Firebird. Oh, you big know, when time. I, when I was 18, 19, I made quick decisions on cars. Like I walked by cars, like I'm going to buy that one. And maybe it didn't happen the first time, but I remember buying this car and I love how it sounded. Yeah. You know, the, the V6. They give you the V6 in Sweden for the Firebird? You got ripped off. I don't know. I'm guessing now. <laughs> yeah. I assume it was a V6, yeah. but maybe it was. <laughs> in America, we had the V8, you know. Maybe obviously. it was a V8. Yeah. Back then, to me, it was the sound yeah. that attracted me. I'm not going to lie. I didn't open the hood that many times. <laughs> but with this car, I remember there was a few incidents because I only had five minutes going to practice. So the engine never really got warm enough. Yeah. The spark plugs, they went bad on me probably two or three times where I remember mm -hmm. coming home from road trips, yeah. try to start the car. This is like 1.30 in the morning and completely dead. So I had teammates pushing <laughs> the car to, to start it. Yeah, And I think I let that happen three or four times. And then eventually I said, I, I can't have this yeah. car. Like I, I, I don't drive it enough and it's not working in a snowy Sweden. I imagine that you bought the car to look like a stud, you know, big firebird <laughs> and to impress the guys in the locker room. I mean, it sounds like the, the bloom came off that rose pretty quick when they had yeah. to push you home. <laughs> but I remember every time I came back from a road trip, I was sitting on the bus and I would see it on the parking lot. It's like, yeah, that's Sick. a cool looking car. Well, you know what car Until guys- Until it didn't start. Yeah, well, <laughs> the car guys always say, if you don't, look back at your car after parking it, you're in the wrong car. Uh-oh. Right? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. So long story <laughs> short, my first car was a shitbox, but my, I grew up and I got the passion from my dad. I grew up helping him in the garage, restoring old cars, learning how to weld, the basic mechanics of tearing apart an engine and putting it back together. And then he started taking me to car races. That's yeah. all. And I know you've been bringing him to a couple of F1 races, right? Yeah, yeah. We go every year to Montreal together, kind of like a father-son trip to the F1 Grand Prix in Montreal, which is a little different vibe than Austin. 
but they're both great and with a different vibe. Tech Austin always has the Texas cowboy vibe. Everything's bigger is better. Montreal's like the European, a slice of Europe that's four hours from New York City. Mm-hmm. So it's really. Have you been to? Montreal? I've not been up there. Yeah, no. we got to. You got to join us. And in terms of driving, I, I know you had a Porsche. 911. Yeah, GT3. GT3. I was kind of your baby for many years. Yeah. Did you take it to track? Yeah, a lot. I had that car mostly to do track events. Not on a paid basis, but there's these kind of high performance driving events that you can sign up for if you're a car club member. And the idea is just like anything else that you're passionate about. It's a controlled forum to practice and get better. So you can take your own car to these events you can ride along with instructors. And the more of these driving events and track days you do, the just like anything else, you get moved up and promoted to the next experience level. So you're going faster and faster. You're learning more about the setup of your car from a simple things like tire pressure to more complicated things like suspension settings. It's like anything, right? You get into this little rabbit hole where you're like, well, what if I did this? Or what if I just had <laughs> this much? And so it becomes this really addicting pursuit that happens to be also extremely expensive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think for the past seven, eight years, almost yearly, I go to track experiences uh, back in Sweden. Yeah. You had a little, uh, ex- really exciting track experience. Well, <laughs> I have had a bunch, but I think which one you're talking about is when I kind of lost control over a brand new uh, Turbo S, uh, <laughs> 911 Turbo S, a Porsche. It was not ideal because we were going to have a photo shoot three days later with that car. And they spent, I think, six hours to remove all their gravel from the car. <laughs> but they still invite me. But listen, I love it because I feel like it's not until you drive on a track, you fully understand sure. how well they built these cars. Yeah, the capabilities the of capability them. Capability yeah. and get an opportunity to drive the Porsche GT3 or GT2 911 Turbo S on, on, on those tracks. I just love to feel that power. And to yeah. me also, it reminds me a little bit of goaltending where it's all about your focus and making quick decisions, uh-huh. right? And all it takes is being a little off mentally or with your focus and- That's a good point, actually. Know. The periphery and the target fixation is a real thing. Like you go where your eyes look. So you're looking around the corner and you're using your peripheral to sense track limits basically. That must be similar to having a sense of what is happening in front of you as a goalie, using the periphery versus focus. Absolutely. You try exactly that point where you try to plan your driving, but also try to understand what is about to happen here. So you have a plan always, and you also know what you need to do to have success. And you just use those strengths when you're driving. But I, I love the focus. And I remember this summer when I went on the track, the first five, six laps, it's, you're not used to the speed. It's kind of like going back on ice after right. not being on the ice for months. And you just feel like the pucks are coming at you so fast. Right. A couple practices in, you start to get used to it, a lot easier to make decisions. Yeah. So I remember halfway through that track day, I felt so much better. And it's also a lot of fun when you start to feel the improvements. Yeah. Right, exactly. And I was just thinking about for a normal guy like me, I go to these driving events and track days just for fun. Like there's no chance I'm ever going to be a F1 racer, right? And it's the same reason guys play club hockey. Like they know that the ultimate NHL goal is never going to happen, but you get a sense of that improvement, you know, as you get better. But it's interesting about F1 is that there's only 20 F1 drivers in the world and there's probably half a million people that start off as 
competitive drivers when they're kids in kart. And so the selection funnel is wild because mm-hmm. you're vying for 20 spots worldwide. And I think we were talking about this weekend, right? The salaries reflect that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, if you make it and, and you do well in Formula One, that you're going to get pretty well compensated. Yeah. But it was cool to be there and understand it's one of those sports that, you know, attract people from all over the world. Yeah. And you saw that in, in, in Austin mm-hmm. this weekend, for example. But if you look at the locations they compete in, it's really all over the world. Yeah. So you don't have a lot of sports like that. Soccer is obviously a worldwide sport, tennis, but F1 is really, and now with the rise here in the States, I feel like- uh, It truly is a global. Absolutely. Like America was the last piece of the puzzle that they were missing, at least in modern F1. They used to race even in South America as well. Uh, in the 60s. Buenos Aires had a Grand Prix, but Long Beach used to have a Grand Prix back in the 60s in the US, but then it fell out of favor for whatever reason. Mm. And it became a European thing. You know, so Drive to Survive has really helped to reignite North America and F1, which is cool. So I think it's time for us to get Zach in here. Is there anything before we do that that you really want to know yeah but we don't have time i'm at the level of fanship now after being an f1 fan since i was in kindergarten that yeah i'm really interested in the details and we're probably not going to get it's not going to be an f1 show it'll be a, a show that's along the club 30 lines right he's a hugely successful ceo I, but i think some of that success is fueled by his own career prior to that as a racing driver right he can speak both sides of the, like both languages mm-hmm. right um so i think that attracts uh, helps him attract talent because drivers have to make a choice like where they hitch their wagon right it's important because if you're you only get one shot at 20 seats you have to understand like you have to trust the management and so i'm interested in that yeah absolutely i think to be able to understand the driver it's kind of like a have a head coach that played in the league and and can relate to players and to have a ceo that can relate to the drivers i think is a huge benefit we should get this show going yeah let's uh, in here let's hear what zach has to say i know he's a busy man but we'll try to squeeze all the pieces of uh, of juicy details out from the weekend out of him if we can and hopefully our voices will last throughout the show yeah we better jump over there all right let's call zach He is one of the most successful entrepreneurs in the history of motorsport, a former race car driver who went from driving fast cars to making quick decisions. You might have seen him in one of Netflix's most popular documentaries on TV, Drive to Survive. Welcome to Club 30, McLaren Racing CEO, Zach Brown. Thanks for being thanks on the for show. Thanks me on. Yeah, thanks, Zach. I got to ask right out of the gates here. I've been a McLaren fan for a long time. How did we convince you to come on Club 30 with and join us today? Who forced you? Yeah. I just do as I'm told. <laughs> ah. Most of the time. All right, well, we appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, we really do. Listen, we, me and Jay, we just came back from Austin. Had a great time watching your team race. We didn't sleep much. We lost our voices. So that's our summary. How was your weekend? <laughs> uh, pretty similar. Uh, <laughs> But mine was all work-related. I don't know. Maybe yours was as, as as well. But it was a very busy week. We got into town on Tuesday. We were with Lando uh, on the West Coast working, seeing a lot of our sponsor partners. And then that continued on with both Lando and Oscar Tuesday onwards, which was awesome. Lots of support from our sponsors in California and Austin are two of the larger office locations. Mm-hmm. And um, 
Yeah, it was a huge race. It's as big as ever. A huge credit to Coda, Austin, for getting Formula One started back up here again in North America. And obviously, lots of uh, people and entities have contributed to its uh, rapid growth here in North America. But uh, I think while all the chat is about what Netflix has done, and they certainly have, I like to uh, start off with hats off, so to speak, to uh, Austin, as I don't think Formula One would be here had they not built such an awesome facility. Yeah. And you, you've been in motorsport for a long time and joined McLaren as a CEO back in 2016. Was that a dream of yours or a goal you had to to start working in F1? Uh, the, the dream was the race for McLaren, but unfortunately <laughs> I fell short of that. So uh, once I hung up my helmet uh, getting into the business, but no, I, I never really kind of had my sights on running a, a racing outfit. I was always, uh, after I was done racing, a, a commercial guy and still very much am and uh, love that part of the sport. But then as I was winding down my own company from having sold it uh, I will, and got involved in other sports, and I do love some other sports, but things I don't have interest in, I have no interest in. So <laughs> I wanted to get back into being 100% motorsports and had a couple of opportunities. And McLaren was the most exciting one because it gave me the combination of being back in a garage racing while doing the commercial side of the sport while running a, a great organization as a CEO of a thousand plus strong people. So it kind of combined my three passions and three skill sets. And here we are uh, in our seventh season. Anything that surprised you? I've had lots of surprises along the way, but that's part of the fun. Mm. Um, you know, when I started at McLaren, we were coming off the worst year in the history of McLaren, and therefore the morale and you know the commercial challenges that come along with that was more difficult than even I had anticipated. Uh, but I think it makes you uh, stronger, and it makes things more rewarding when you have the success that we're having now, knowing that we uh, came from a pretty uh, pretty dark space. Yeah, no doubt. We were actually talking before the show about, uh, you know, the perception that new fans have is that McLaren is a, you know, a scrappy underdog that's making a great, but, you know, I was telling Hank, you guys are one of the most revered and respected brands in F1 and have been for a long time. Yes, second most successful team in the history of Formula That's One, right. 20 world championships between constructors and drivers and 183 wins and 500 and I guess four podiums now or 503 podiums. So uh, certainly an iconic yeah. historic racing team that uh, we're trying to remind people of when we celebrate our 60-year anniversary like we're doing this year with our Triple Crown, the only team to have won uh, Le Mans, the Indy 500 in, in Monaco. So uh, it's great working towards the future while uh, acknowledging and recognizing our past. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, speaking of highlights, this may be akin to picking a favorite child, but obviously prior to uh, this season, the C Zach Brown as CEO highlight at McLaren might have been the one-two at Monza in 21. How does that flash success compare to the run you guys have had since the summer break this season? I think it's kind of hard to compare the two other than to say that they've both been awesome. 21, we also had Daniel had his struggles. So to, to have Daniel win a race was awesome. To have it be a one-two mm -hmm. is kind of the perfect storybook, if you'd like. And then uh, given how poor we started this year to come back and now effectively be the second quickest team the uh, second half of the year and be reeling off all these podiums and a sprint win is not in a million years where I thought we would be after the start of the year. And because it's not just one race, I mean, we had, I think it was five podiums in the one. So we weren't, I wouldn't say we were as strong as we are now, but we were definitely getting stronger. But 
I think anytime you know you've earned it and you see all the hard work the men and women at McLaren have done and they're seeing the benefit from that, it's a great moment to celebrate. And there's incredible technology with F1 and the drivers. And we were talking about this before the show. You see a lot of young drivers having success right now. But what are you looking for in if you want to become a really good driver in F1? What skills do you need versus if you compete in um, a regular race car and not an F1 car? Well, I think Formula One's just the best of the the best when it comes to road racing talent. You know, I I, I think each racing discipline, the world champions are special. So whether that's World Rally or IndyCar or Le Mans or Formula One, you know what it takes uh, in any of these racing series are someone who's naturally gifted behind the wheel with their right foot and their hands and their left foot for braking. You know, that's as important (laughs) that you know how to brake and uh, get into corners quickly. But then beyond that, I think especially in Formula One, because of how sophisticated the sport is technically, you need a racing driver who can comprehend what's going on with the car, you know, almost has an engineering type mindset because you need to set these cars up, not just drive them fast. So I think it takes a a driver that has a very good understanding of the race car and the technologies because you dial these race cars in to suit your driving style and you can dial them in and you can dial them out. Mm-hmm. So I think, and then as a young driver, uh, like Oscar, Lando's young too, but he's very experienced, having patience and knowing uh, when to learn and when to go for it is critically important because young drivers tend to kind of go for it when they don't necessarily need to end up making a mistake, end up in the fence and they've ruined their weekend on Friday mm-hmm. where you look at someone like Oscar and he takes a very step-by-step approach and he knows the first lap that really counts for him is Q1 in qualifying. So he uses Friday and Saturday morning to build up to being able to put the, put down that lap time in Q1 on Saturday where uh, some, maybe some younger, uh, more inexperienced a uh, little too eager drivers might try and see what they can do on Friday and they end up making a mistake or hurting the car and then it makes it difficult to recover for the weekend. So when, when I play throughout my career, I always said 90% was mental. How, how important would you say it is for a driver? What What's going on between the ears? It's, it's very important. You know, keep themselves focused, keep communications with the team, understand, you know, if you're kind of screaming on the radio, um, you're not going to be getting um, information from your team. It's pretty hard to uh, multitask. So if you're, uh, again, not focused because you're not showing high levels of maturity, you'll end up missing something that's going on in the race. So these these drivers have the ability to really slow things down. So, um, you know, have more capacity left in their brain to uh, to uh, to perform. It's always when, when you watch the show, how relaxed they do speak to you guys going 150, 200 miles an hour and talking with that slow voice and, and pace. It's just incredible yeah. watching that. Yeah. Or sometimes commenting from what they've seen on the big screens. That's the amazing part is just how they're able to slow things down, like mm-hmm. you said, Zach, and process so much data in a way that makes them maybe rightfully so feel like superhuman you know (laughs) yeah so fernando obviously he was pretty funny with his comment uh, there but when you're out driving if if you're uh, in control things are happening slower for you than you might 
think, and your senses are very strong. So you can look around, you can smell barbecues in different parts of the track. <laughs> I remember you used to get that at, at Sebring. You pick up visually, you pick up visual cues. So yeah, Fernando is one of the best ever. And that's a good example of most people will be holding on for dear life at 220 miles right. an hour. He's watching TV. Right. Speaking <laughs> of the best of all time, certainly you guys have been home team to many drivers world champions and a bunch of other guys who are world champions have driven for McLaren. Can you give us a sense on who's the GOAT? Well, for me, it's Ayrton Senna. But again, that's pretty uh, subjective. I never sure. got a chance to uh, work with him or even meet him for that matter. But I just certainly grew up watching him. And he, I think the best you can do is kind of break, with any of these sports is break things down by era because it's just so hard, you know, no. So I think clearly... Lewis in, in modern day. And then before Lewis, it was Schumacher. You know, even though Alonso doesn't have the same race record as those, I think from a talent standpoint, I'd put Fernando up against anybody. But if I had to pick one, it would be Senna. But I know some people that followed the sport before me would say Jackie Stewart and Juan Manuel Fangio. Of course. Of course. Is there, there's a similar debate about the GOAT happening in hockey right now. And I don't think anybody expected that to happen so soon because it was always- Who do you have that as? McDavid? McDavid is up there. And then you have Ovi, obviously, with the scoring. But nobody's talked about Gretzky here. I mean, (laughs) like like Senna, I was a huge Senna fan growing up, and that's how I got introduced to the sport. For me, saying any other word after GOAT in hockey and it's not Gretzky feels kind of dirty, even though (laughs) objectively- I think Zach's point is right. You have to use eras to define this relative. But I agree with you. I would would say Gretzky as well. Okay, thanks. We're going to get along pretty good. (laughs) But so being the CEO of McLaren Racing, obviously there's more than just coaching and and making decisions within F1. You're looking at expansion and and other series. Can you tell us a little bit about your days and how much you pay attention to F1 and other parts of the business? I work seven days a week and probably... 20 hours a day, or certainly uh, 18. And so I pay attention to everything. I don't think if there's something I need to pay attention to, it's critically important. So I don't kind of pay attention to some things. Formula One is certainly the lion's share of what I spend my time on, but it's equally as important to me that we win in IndyCar and Formula E and Extreme E and anything else that we may compete in. But Formula One is the lion's share of our activity. I spend the most of my time, it kind of depends what day of the week it is and whether we're racing or not, but generally making sure the business is fiscally healthy, working with our shareholders, uh, spend a lot of time on the brand, on the sales and marketing side. I guess where I spend the least amount of my time is on the technology side. I think my role there is to get the best people in place and get them the tools, the resources, the people they need to be successful. But where I'm not spending time is working on what our new front wing should uh, look like. We have people that are far smarter than myself working in that part of our racing team. Sounds like you work a lot, but can you explain to our listeners a little bit how an F1 season looks like? The amount of travel, the amount of cities all over the world you, you visit. Yeah, I'm on the road about 270 days uh, a year. We have four different racing series, five if you count esports. Uh, so 
Formula One is 23 races this year, will be 24 next year. IndyCar, I think, was 16, 17 races, as is Formula E. Extreme E, I think, is six or seven. So you kind of put those all together. I'm at a racetrack about 30-plus times a year because I also want to see what other sports and other motorsports are doing. So I'll go to Le Mans. I'll go to events like Goodwood and the Monterey Historics. I'll race about five times a year myself. So I'm pretty much at a racetrack about every weekend and on a plane two out of three days, but doing various things. You know, at a race weekend, I'm looking after our sponsor partners, doing a lot of media work, making sure there's just a good vibe in the uh, uh, at the track. Um, but what I'm not doing is deciding what lap we're pinning on. And then uh, during the week, I'm, I'm more focused on those same roles, but doing it uh, back at the factory, the manufacturing unit, uh, the commercial team, and uh, work very closely with my uh, head of HR and finance. And then, of course, communications is a very important part of what we do, communicating internally and externally. So there's no shortage of things to do. <laughs> so when I listened to this and then I realized when you heard about Drive to Survive for the first time, okay, you're, you're such a busy man, a lot of pressure, and now you're going to have a TV crew running around capturing all this. But what was your first reaction when you heard about Drive to Survive? By the way, it's my favorite show on TV, but what was your reaction? I thought it was going to be great for the sport. I don't think, uh, I certainly didn't anticipate it being as big as it has been. I think anyone who says they have is kind of making up a story because it's been, it's been unbelievable for the sport. So uh, I thought it would be great. Uh, we did something with Amazon the year before called Grand Prix Driver, which was great and gave people a view inside McLaren, but it didn't have anywhere near the following Netflix ads. So I think it's been great. They blend in, they go in team gear, they mic you up in the morning and you kind of forget about an hour later that you're mic'd up. They use big, long booms. So they're not really disruptive and you get to know the the people and they, they know kind of how to give you your space while making sure they capture the content they need. So they've been wonderful for the sport. How did your life, if, did it change? Because I feel like now you're a big character on this show. Yeah, it's it's brought a, a lot of awareness. So there's kind of not an airport I can go through without uh, getting recognized or anywhere in the world. So from that standpoint, uh, I watch TV, but not that much. So I was a bit pleasantly surprised at uh, how much people watch TV shows and recognize people. So uh, it's definitely brought a lot more awareness to the sport and everyone in it. And I think that's good because part of my job is to share McLaren with the fans. Obviously a huge success, but the old adage, you know, win on Sunday, sell on Monday. How much crossover and impact have you seen with McLaren's road car effects division, you know, all of the success, especially in the United States? Yeah, qu quite a bit. There's not quite the technology crossover that maybe people think. You take the brakes off your Formula One car and you stick it on your road car, you really more develop ways of working, uh, materials, uh, knowledge, you know, training people up on how to problem solve. But, you know, we're making road cars that go 100,000 miles and sure. half the components on our Formula One car are meant to go 100 miles. But you can get into things like heat transfer and, and carbon and lightweighting and things of that nature. And then where there's a lot of crossover are people that are McLaren automotive customers most, if not all, love our Formula One team and vice versa. So we definitely share the the brand attributes and give 
uh, access, if you'd like, to our automotive customers to be involved in our our racing programs. So we more benefit from sharing each other's brands and products, if you'd like, than we do sitting down, you know, developing a braking system that's going to fit in both our Formula One car and our uh, uh, road cars. Yeah. So if, if Hank owned a McLaren, we would have had better seats this weekend is what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah, got it. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. All right. It's good to know. <laughs> yeah. It's good to know. But obviously, the last couple of years, interest in the U.S. gone up so much. What do you see as the next step to continue the growth of the sport in the U.S.? I think we're just getting started, right? We haven't had Vegas yet, so that's going to be awesome. We're only two years into Miami. Brad Pitt has a new movie coming out uh, end of next year, I think, much like Top Gun, if you watch Top Gun and you want it to be a pilot afterwards, I would imagine there's going to be a lot of people that want to be a racing car driver or have, you know be in the racing business. So I think that's going to create a lot of new exposure. Our television contract is brand new. They're making a much more substantial investment. Therefore, they'll make a more substantial investment in supporting their investment. So, you know, more content, et cetera. So I, I think in North America, in many ways, we're just getting started. And with Vegas, I was there a couple of weeks ago, obviously, you see a lot going on in that city right now, but how does that work? You guys come in the week before to, to check the track or how close to the race do you actually go there and get used to everything? Well, we, we'll have already been there from a you know, sponsor activation layout point of view. So, you know, where are the hotels and where are the events and how do you get to the paddock from the hotels, that type of logistics. Uh, everything we do is on simulation, which is very uh, accurate. Uh, these days. So, you know, we can't get on the track early uh, or any different than another race weekend other than this is a Saturday race. So therefore we'll start Thursday on track instead of the usual Friday. But the drivers take about two laps to learn learn a circuit. They will have been doing simulation. So we'll have a sense of what aerodynamic package we want, what tires we think we might want to use. And then the drivers will do a track walk on, on Wednesday. And after a few laps on Thursday, they'll feel uh, pretty comfortable. It's pretty amazing. One of the things I found really exciting about the Austin race was the difference between what a good simulation looks like and then what happens of all, with all the things you can't control in the race itself, right? Really bumpy, really hot. We thought for a while that Lando and was, well, it was a great honor. I thought that he was being marked by Red Bull and strategy, but making that one stop work versus not. We were sitting in the stands betting, like thinking this was all going to converge in the last laps and, and Lando was going to be able to pull off a one stopper and then it all fell apart. Uh, we were never going to do a one-stopper. No. We just wanted people to uh, maybe See. think we we were. Uh, Mind games. That. that was part of the uh, that was part of the strategy. We were we were going to be a two-stopper the entire time. Love that. Is is there a lot of that going on between teams to try to make them think? Yeah, definitely the wrong thing. Well, it worked. A, it feels like everybody yeah. bid on it too. Yeah. No, yeah. there's a big uh, big element of. Um, you know, no different than in a baseball game and you see a third base coach, you know, throwing out all sorts of signs. You're open to uh, either have them not figure out what you're doing or hope that they've figured it out, but they got it wrong and then draw them into doing something that might compromise their race and, uh, and support ours. Great. Well, listen, we know you're a very busy man. We really appreciate you coming on the show. We're big fans of you on the show, the racing, and uh, hopefully we'll meet at, the, at a race yeah very soon sounds like a plan yeah best of luck finishing off this season really strong and thanks again thank you very much thanks, thanks for having me on thank you thanks Zach thanks again to Zach for joining us I mean there's no question that guy is busy yeah 
Seven How many days. Many travel days? He said 260 travel days, or he's on the road 260 years and on a plane two out of every three days. <laughs> That's wild. That's a lot. That's a yeah. lot. And it's interesting to, you know, with such a busy job and to have Netflix come in and create so much attention to your daily job, right? Yeah. And also how it affects his life moving right. forward. Like you say, walking in at the airport and totally. everybody's stopping him. Yeah. I mean, we were away for three days and our wives are both mad at us. Imagine if we were away <laughs> for 260. Uh, but yeah, and then having every aspect of your life recorded from, you know, at least a, from on race weekends must be, I guess you get used to it. You got used to being in the locker room at the end of every game and getting interviewed, but this, that feels like a lot. A lot, but I'm really happy we got through this show with with our voices. <laughs> yes, uh, being in Austin all weekend and and watching a lot of race and not getting a lot of sleep. It was questionable if it we would. could do it, but we did. We did. It's time to go home and drink some tea. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll see you guys next week. I hope you enjoy this. It yeah, was, it was great to have him on. Yeah, thanks for joining us with Zach Brown. Appreciate everybody watching and listening. All the best, guys. <laughs>